Be seated, please. My bad, I keep on forgetting. Now time for the sermon by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled The Ethics of Faith in Our Words. Looks like a good one. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on a warmer Sabbath day. Uh, and uh, today, as you just was mentioned by Owen, uh, the title of this message is uh, The Ethics of Faith in Our Words. And this is part six of the series that I began at the beginning of this year, uh, which is a study on the book of James. And so, it's been a little while, I think it's been since July uh, since I've spoke, so we haven't had a message in this series for a few months, so I thought that I would kind of just review what we've, what we've went through so far up to this point. And so we started back in January, the first uh, of the series, the ethics of faith in our identity. And what we learned through that was that the ethics of faith allows us to understand where and with whom our true identity lies. And we looked at how James identified himself, and in particular as a servant of God, and who he was addressing this letter to. And we looked at the themes of this letter, and the difficult thing about this letter is that in almost every single section, a lot of different ideas are kind of going together. And so it's hard to kind of separate, well, James is talking about this and this part, and James is talking about that and that part, because he keeps talking about a lot of the same things in different ways. But chiefly among what James communicates through this letter is very, very simple. Live out your faith. And that's why I chose the title of this series to be The Ethics of Faith. That's what it's about. It's about our ethics, about our goings and doings. Not just about our professions, which are important, but rather, we have to back that up with actually doing the things that we claim, or our faith rather, claims us to have. Then part two, we looked at the ethics of faith in trials. And we learned about the attitude that we were supposed to have when we face trials. We learned a little bit about some of the things that people in the first century went through that were those early Christians. We looked at in part three, ethics of faith in obedience. Sounds simple but much more hard to live out than it sounds because we don't live in a vacuum. We don't live on Mars. Paul even alludes to that. We live in a world where sometimes being obedient to God is not real easy. And we have to go through different things. And we have to come in contact with different people. And we have to live in particular cultures and particular societies that do not always have God, obviously, at the forefront of that culture or society. Part four, we looked at the ethics of faith and justice. A huge thing that James harps upon. Something that is, I think, going to be universally and perpetually important for all Christians of every era. And that is the way in which we see people. Do we see people the way the world sees people? Do we see people's status? Do we see the, the physical attributes of them? Their bank account? Or do we see people in which and treat people in the which God sees them. And that's what we looked at when it came to part four. And our last one that we did right before this one was ethics of faith in good works. And we looked at that dirty word, and I call it a dirty word because in so many Christian circles for so many years since the Reformation, that word works, and Christianity has kind of had a 
peculiar relationship to each other. And it's kind of had kind of some bad pub, I guess you could say, because the way that people have interpreted the idea of works. In this message today, we're going to look at the ethics of our faith in our words. Something very important. Something that almost, if you just read James chapter 3, 1 through 12, you're almost going to leave thinking that, is James saying that I'm supposed to be now a mute? Because he talks about how strong and how powerful the tongue is and how it's set so often to destruction. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But what I want to do with it being the Feast of Tabernacles coming up is I want to kind of go back and talk about some other things and tie in this theme in our words to a particular feast theme. And that is the theme of how we are to represent God on this earth. You know, throughout time, God himself has revealed himself by many different channels, I guess you could say. You know, we know that God is said to have revealed himself through his creation. We can talk about the heavenly bodies that none of us have ever been to before. Outer space, our, you know, our galaxy, our universe that we live in, all the way down to the earth in which we live in, and all the different species that roam this earth and the intricate complexities of life, and how all of it intertwines with each other to allow an environment for human beings and for life to exist. In other words, God has revealed to us, humans, not just Christians, humans, His existence just by means of the creation around us. To look at things and look and see how they have a purposeful design about them. And for us to cognitively become aware that, yes, there indeed has to be a creator and a designer behind this. But God has also said to have revealed himself to us in special ways. We call this special because God has actually entered into space and time throughout history to specifically reveal himself to either a particular person or a particular group of people. We all know about the burning bush. Right? A burning bush. God has revealed himself through a burning bush and the story in which we have through the Bible. He's revealed himself through visions, through dreams, through talking donkeys, through smoking mountains, and, of course, through other people, through prophets. The primary means that God would reveal himself throughout all of the Old Testament was by means of a prophet. Moses, Joshua, the judges of the judges period, Samuel, and others. In all of these examples, God intervened in the affairs of human beings to both note, negotiate and communicate His will to His people Israel. We flip it over to the New Testament, we see that God has chosen to reveal Himself in a different way. Let's go to John, the first chapter. A very famous string of passages, the prologue of John, verse 1 of John's first chapter says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This is an obvious borrowing of Genesis, the first chapter. 
Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here we see that John is borrowing from that language. And if we skip down to verse 14 of the same chapter of John, speaking about that word logos, is some, uh, which is the Greek word, the, the word that, kind of hard to say this, but the word that John is using for word in English is the Greek word logos. And it has a lot of different meanings. And that's not so much what I'm trying to get into. I'm trying to get into how John is presenting this. But when we go down to verse 14, he says, And the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And one of the most interesting parts of this verse is by that word that he chose to use. Of course, in the beginning, he's talking about the logos. But... When he goes to verse 14, he uses the word, it's a Greek verb here, eskaneo. And it means dwelt in the, in, the, in the English is what it comes out to. But it means to pitch a tent or to dwell temporarily. Some translations, we see that he pitched a tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And we know that tabernacling is a temporary thing. And so when we look at this word, eskaneo, coupled with the word glory, the immediate thing that John's audience would come to mind in their heads would be Exodus, the 33rd chapter. And just the story in general of the Exodus story. Because in the Old Testament, the way in which God would dwell with His people was by means of the glory, as sometimes it's called the Shekinah, that resided over the tabernacle. And in the story of Exodus, the 33rd chapter, verse 7 through 11, I'm not going to turn there just for the sake of time, but you can turn there in your own, in your own, uh, at your own convenience, and you've probably read it before. But it's the story about how God spoke with Moses face to face. God and Moses. Of course, we can talk about, well, how much of God's glory did he really see? There was smoke. God probably masked his glory for the purpose of not annihilating Moses. But afar off from them, at the edge of the camp, was the people watching this event take place. And from that point forward, we see that God's glory dwelt with Israel by means of a cloud by day and a fire by night. And right here, we see, starting in John, the first chapter, verse 15, if we go back to that, we see John is telling us something, that something has changed in the history of this world. That God has chosen to do something different, which was, of course, from the very foundations of the world as far as his plan. And verse 15, right after that passage about how Jesus dwelt, we all know that this word was a reference to the one who became Jesus. But at verse 15, it says that John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said... He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is at the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. All of this that we are reading is probably a refresher. We've all been exposed to these passages in the Bible. But what we are seeing taking place at this very moment that John is presenting, this logos that has become flesh and has dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, is he's making a comparison between Moses and Jesus. 
Because all of the Jews, all of Israel would know that when it came to dwelling with God, that their heritage, that their beginning story, as far as it goes back from leaving Egypt, all came down to Moses communicating with God and Moses being the lawgiver. Of course, God's the lawgiver, but Moses was a type of mediary between the people and between God. And John's saying, at this very moment, that changed. Because in the Old Testament, subsequent years after this, what we see is, is that when Israel wanted to know what God was thinking, what God was doing, what God desired of Israel, what would they do? Is there a word from a prophet? They would wait for a prophet by means of which God would communicate his will to the people of Israel. That is over. At this point in time, John is telling us that we do not, from afar off, behold the glory of God anymore. But the glory of God has now been revealed through Jesus, through this one that was the word that became flesh and actually dwelt among us. He has declared them. Let's go to Hebrews, the first chapter, just to look at this, to see how Hebrews presents the same idea. Hebrews, the first chapter, another very popular passage or string of passages. It says, At God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sent down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Hebrews is telling us about that idea, that idea that the prophets of old all acted as a way, as a mediator between the will of God and God's people. And through Jesus, that has been replaced. We don't have to wait for a word from the Lord. We don't have to wait for a prophet to rise up. Does that mean that we don't have ministers? Does that mean that we don't have people that God has called to do a particular work? Of course, that's not what that means. What that means is, is that now, through Jesus, God's glory has been revealed to all of us. And my whole reasoning for presenting this to us today, in a context that we're talking about our speech, which is coming in just a minute, is just as Jesus has revealed the glory of God to us, we now have the responsibility to re represent that glory within us to the world. We know that Matthew, the fifth chapter, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, is the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And two particular things that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount was about how you are to be us, not just you. you. He's speaking to the people at the time. But he's talking to all of us who are followers of him that we are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We have the responsibility as Jesus has revealed his glory, as God has revealed his glory through his son, Jesus Christ, and they live within us now. We have the responsibility to represent them 
on this earth and act as salt of the earth and as light of the world or lights of the world. We live in a decaying world. We live in a world that is perpetually and constantly, uh, obviously getting further and further away from the ideals of what this book right here believes in and teaches and promotes. And so we as Christians are to act as salt to slow down that process, to promote righteousness in this world, especially as it comes from the church. And we are also to be lights of the world by means of understanding that it's not us. We're not the light. We are rather reflectors of that light. I've mentioned this analogy before, and I'll mention it again. But just as the moon, the light of the moon receives its light as a reflection of the sun, the greater light, we as Christians living on this earth must reflect the glory of our source, which is our God and Father and Jesus Christ. And so with all of this, I want us to look at what we're going to talk about today. And I also want us to keep in mind, going off to the Feast of Tabernacles, looking at what it represents, hearing messages about what it represents, and realizing that in all, it represents a future time, but also it represents, or it's a reminder for us, how we're supposed to live today. The kingdom of God has not been established on this earth. But just because it's something that's future doesn't mean that we are supposed to wait to the future to behave as if we are being ruled by the kingdom of God. And we have to remember that when we come into contact with people, as we all know, and it sounds cliche, we are representing Jesus Christ and God the Father. And one particular way that people will be able to see if that glory of Christ is truly and faithfully being represented by you is by the way you talk. By your speech. By our speech. Not just mine. I'm saying it to all of us. So let's look at James, the first chapter. Let's look at James 1. And let's look at what he has to say because he's actually probably having a particular group of people in mind, but it can be casted to a wider audience. And I'll mention what I mean by that in a minute. But James, the first chapter, I'm just going to go ahead and read all 12 verses. It says, My brethren, I'm reading from the New King James Version within this string here. My brethren, not, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. And if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to brittle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths, mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships, although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the, fire is, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets, on the fi and sets on fire the course of nature. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men 
and have been made in the similitude. Uh, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh water. And so right here, the principal theme that James is playing on is really simple. Beware of the destructive nature and the power of the tongue. It's deceptive because when we think about it, it's a very small part of our body. But yet it boasts really great things. James has already mentioned before chapter 3 the idea of the tongue six times. It's a large portion of what he has to say to the people that he is writing to. And so looking at this string of passages, I want to bring to us two particular points today. The points when it comes to looking at James 3 verses 1 through 12 are kind of difficult because they're so obvious. In other words, we see what James is saying here. But how can we pivot to understand? In other words, how can we apply this to a more general idea within our own lives? Are there, are there other things that undergird maybe problems that we might have when it comes to not having the right speech? And so with that, I want us to look at two particular points today. I'm going to read number one real quick. My first point today is seek to elevate the glory of God with our words, not ourselves. Seek to elevate the glory of God with our words, not ourselves. Right here, James is in particular talking to teachers. He says, let not many of you become teachers. Now, if you take it just at that, that just might really, you know, shorten down the audience in which James is talking to. Because many of us don't desire to be teachers. There's less teachers than there are teachers, obviously. And so what we have to do in looking at this is we can see that there's a lot of points that we can derive from this. And one of them is, is that really, in reality, we are all teachers. If you are a parent, you are a teacher. If you are in a particular situation where someone asks you a question, I know you're not a formal teacher, but you are in a teachable moment. Whether we are actually teachers or not, as far as profession, or at church, or at work, does not mean that we actually don't have teachable moments. That we don't have situations where we have to use our tongue, and where we have to instruct. And so with this, that's what I want us to be aware of. It's not just teachers that can apply these principles to their life. It's all of us. Because all of us have to use our mouth. All of us have to speak and communicate. That is, if we, are, if we are able. Of course, there's other ways if we are not physically able to uh, talk, to communicate. So I want to bring with us today, at looking at that point, seeking to elevate the glory of God with our words, not ourselves, I want to bring out something I read this week, or three points within this point uh, that I read today, or this week in preparing this message, from a guy by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh. Bob Deffenbaugh is a pastor. He writes all different types of articles uh, on book studies. And I have kind of grown to really like his writing style. And so I was just kind of looking at some of the things that he had to say when it came to 
what James, the third chapter, said. And he brought out three different things that teachers, any of us that use our mouth to instruct people, especially within the church, three things that we need to be aware of when it comes to getting involved in any kind of teaching, any kind of instructing. And he also, looking at this, it also could be applied. There's three different uh, or impure desires that sometimes people who desire a teaching post might have. The first one is the idea that adversity attracts many counselors, many teachers, and many self-proclaimed pundits, self-wise pundits. Let's just think about that. We see biblical examples of this. You look at the story of Job. Job's going through all of these horrible situations and horrible things. And what is the counsel? What does everybody around him, like his particular friends, what do they think about what he's going through? In their minds, it has to be something that he's done, some kind of sin that he hasn't repented of. Of course, when we look at the greater story of this, we see that that was not true at all. Those friends were actually condemned by God as speaking untruths. Well, let's just think about this. How easy is it when someone else has a problem to run to them and try to tell them what their solution is? We have people like that. I mean, all of us can maybe be in situations, and it depends on how close we are to that person. But sometimes we might have a temptation to run to tell people what the solution is to their issue before we really realize what we're talking about. And so that's one of the things that James is talking about here. Many people within the church back then and, of course, within the church today and just around the world, just in any different social context, there is a human temptation to kind of have the answer to someone else's problem. It's really easy to diagnose from afar. The second thing is, and this has to do with the social context of the day, that still applies to our own, is that is the temptation for people to try to go about getting their own interests. Kind of what Ken was talking about earlier. Many people, obviously, we can see so many examples of this, want to be teachers to promote their own interest. We see in Acts, the 20th chapter, you don't have to turn there, Paul actually warns the elders at Ephesus, telling them that people, even among the people of Ephesus, will rise up and try to deceive many and try to bring a following after themselves. Now, I don't think that many of us have to think very long and hard to see that the history of Christianity for the past 2,000 plus years, there is no shortage of self-righteous pundits, of religious gurus, of self-claimed prophets that claim that they have some special knowledge, as Ken was just mentioning too, and have tried to gain a following. In our own context, in our own history of the Church of God, Maybe you've experienced this personally. There is no shortage, of course, from individuals trying to come up and rise up and get a following. But in some ways, it's interesting when we look at our culture and our society because we can actually ask the question, does our culture almost facilitate this mindset? What kind of culture we live in? We live in a culture of specialization. It's not always a bad thing. Let me explain. We live in a society where everyone has a specialty in life. You have doctors. You have lawyers. 
you have plumbers, you have engineers, you have all different professions. And we living in this culture, we've become accustomed to go to that particular expert that we need to go to when we are in a particular need that's relevant to that particular expert. We go to our doctor to tell us what medicine to take. We go to our uh, mechanic to tell us what type of oil to use in our car. We go to our dentist to tell us what type of toothpaste to eat. Or not eat, excuse me, I hope you're not eating toothpaste, but to use when you brush your teeth. We live in a culture specialization. We have gotten, I'm not saying we personally, I'm just saying our culture, we've gotten used to relying on people that are experts in different fields for whatever need we may have. And that's not always a bad thing. It, to an extent, is a testimony to God's glory himself because he's given us the ability to reason. We do need specialists. We can't know all things and everything about everything. So it is nice to be able to go and see someone that specializes in a particular area. But what happens when that starts bleeding into our spiritual life? Because I think in a large part of that culture has kind of bled into religion, and in particular to the church. And I'm not talking about this church, I'm just talking about just Christianity in general. People want to be told not just what medicine to take, not just what kind of toothpaste to use, not just what kind of oil to put in their car, but what to believe theologically. What to do or what the right thing is according to the Bible. We literally live in a culture of specialization to some extent that it has actually, in some context, I think created a society where the seeking of a person after God ends at Mr. Oracle's words. To borrow the language of Ralph Martin. So we can just think about how our culture almost to an extent kind of feeds this monster. And the reason I brought this up is because I have personally experienced this. Uh, seeing churches, uh, and this is not a condemnation whatsoever, but seeing some who don't want to hear anyone else but that particular individual. That don't want to read anything else but that particular individual. That don't want that person to stop talking after an hour and a half. This is, I promise I won't go an hour and a half. But I have seen that uh, demonstrated. And it has, uh, something that has came to my mind in looking at this and looking at our society and our culture. The third thing, this is a contextual thing as far as... Uh, the day in which Jesus was, was living, in which James was writing here, the status of teacher. There is a, something to be said about the status that teachers were afforded in the first century, which was a very prestigious position. To be called a rabbi in first century Judaism was a very, very, very esteemed position. Jesus actually said in Matthew, the third chapter, verse 6 and 7, they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi. We see that there was a lot of people that were motivated to be teachers for the purpose of getting the status that was afforded to it. 
this bled into the early church. We see in different pa passages, for example, Matthew 13, Acts 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, you go read those on your own time, we see that people that came out of first century Judaism brought with them that idea of seeking offices of teaching for the purpose of the status that it afforded. And we see that there was a lot of different issues within churches of people claiming to be after this person or claiming to be after that person. And with that status came people that would look at them differently, that would afford them the best seats in the house, kind of what James was talking about when we looked at the ethics of faith and justice and things like that. The very prohibition of James saying, be careful, not many of you should become teachers, might even be a testament that that was going on in the different congregations that James himself had in mind. And so with this, we looked at those three things, those three potential, uh, we could call them temptations that people might fall into when it comes to trying to become a teacher. We see that James says there's two reasons that you need to be careful. Number one, greater judgment comes upon those who teach. Two reasons. We don't see James specifically go into detail, but we know that Jesus himself did. Luke 12, Jesus tells us that greater knowledge equals more expectation. Whoever's given more, more is required of them. We also see in Matthew 12 that judgment is according to one's words. And the primary tool or instrument or member that a teacher is going to use is their mouth. So we see that the judgment of teachers is much more greater, but he also mentions the idea that not only is your judgment greater, but we are all prone to stumbling. And guess what you use when you teach? You use the untamable tongue. So therefore, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us stumble in many ways, as James says. And stumbling basically... Paul actually uses this term talking about sin tripping us up, you know, making us stumble. And we see that the tongue is one of the greatest instruments, members, that makes all of us stumble. Okay? So skipping down, let's look at James's illustrations. James gives us two illustrations. Well, he gives us more than two, but he gives us three. But we're going to look at those first two. This right here, I think, is almost self-explanatory. So as James is talking about how, you know, be careful about being a teacher. You have a greater judgment whenever you become a teacher, and all of us are prone to stumbling, and when you stumble and you make someone else stumble, obviously you're going to have more judgment come upon you. But James is also concerned with just how destructive and how powerful that tongue just is, that, that speech is. He actually gives two illustrations. One of them, he talks about the bits in horses' mouths. I'm not familiar with horses. I've been around horses very little, but I know enough to understand that the piece of uh, equipment that they use to control a horse is bits within the mouth, or at least it was in this context. And so you have this huge horse, this large, I'm guessing that a horse is anywhere from 500 to 800 pounds, huge horse, but yet it's controlled by a very small bit that fits in the mouth. You control the bits, you control the mouth, you control the entire horse. The other illustration has to do with, of course, a large vessel, a large ship. No matter how big a ship is, 
no matter how big the waves are giving the power of it to move and the winds, it's guided to its destination by a very small rudder in comparison to the larger vessel of the ship. And so what James is saying here is essentially that look how small the tongue is, but it's very powerful. And when something's very small, we can very quickly and very easily underestimate the power that it just might have. Let's go ahead and read that verse one more time. Verse uh, James, the third chapter, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 again. I'm going to read out of a different translation because I like this translation just a little bit better the way it comes out. It says, this is the net translation, that's the New English translation. It says in verse 5 of James 3, So too the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it has great pretensions. Great pretensions, meaning that it boasts great things. The tongue. Look how the, the big things that the tongue says that it can do. We talk all the time, you might hear in a culture, people, they can talk all they want to. People can talk real big talk. Real big things. Things that they themselves are really not capable of doing. We see this, of course, in sports. Smack talk, as sometimes they like to use the term. The tongue boasts great things. Think how small a flame sets a huge forest ablaze, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue represents the world of wrongdoing among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the entire body and sets fire to the course of human existence and is set on fire by hell. Let's just think about the negative things that a tongue can do. A tongue can start wars. A tongue can start rumors, obviously. It can be the, it can cause divorces to take place. It can cause loss of friendships, loss of employment. Interesting little illustration that, that James here uses is the idea of the tongue being related to the small flicker of a fire and starting a forest ablaze. In that same article that I was reading when I was preparing for this message by that author by the name of Bob Deffenbaugh, he mentioned a trip that he took to, to Montana one year. And when on that trip he saw uh, the aftermath of a large forest fire that had broke out in the area of Montana that he was in. He was told by a friend that the way in which that forest fire, that forest fire that destroyed, you know, hundreds of square miles of forest was started by a grasshopper jumping onto an exhaust muffler, setting on fire, getting, you know, catching on fire, and then jumping off. So something as small as a grasshopper starting on, you know, getting, catching on fire can actually you know, in that situation started this huge forest fire that had a lot of destruction. But you know what the biggest thing? There's two things. The tongue is capable of not just hurting you, but many other people around you. Think about this. And this goes back to the other thing I was going to talk about, which was, when, you know, when you talk about, like, physical damage that you're going to do somebody, if you're going to punch somebody, if you're going to hit somebody, if you're going to even throw a bomb at them or shoot them with a gun or hit them with a knife. What do you have to do? What, 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 Proximity-wise, you have to be in a relatively close range to the individual. Now, of course, we have technology and things like that that might kind of 
mess my analogy up a little bit, but nevertheless, the words are different. Because of the technology that we have social media-wise, internet-wise, words are weapons at a distance. I can be right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and do something, say something that causes damage anywhere in the world. I don't have to be close at all because of technology, because of social media. Let's just think about this. Also, it can damage someone else, not just yourself. I mean, the tongue has the power to set a blaze of force, meaning that it's going to cause damage to many more people than just you or people even related to you. Think about social media today, how one person can say one thing in our immediate context today, and a riot could break out in a city because of those words. A riot could break out because someone said something that offended someone that got people riled up to the point where they destroy things. And peoples that have nothing to do with the situation might have property destroyed. Financial burdens because businesses might have been destroyed in the course of this riot. Now, I'm not, you know, saying anything other than that when it comes to riots. I have no uh, say whatsoever when it comes to those different arguments that are going on. But just think about how many things, social media... Of course, they're not, ver you know, they're not words that people actually speak. They write them, but it's the same thing. How much destruction uh, it can cause a group of people and people that aren't even in that context, aren't even a part of that group, how it can come and harm other people. The tongue can damage at a distance. The tongue can damage at a distance. Let's move on to that second point. My first point was simple. Okay? Make sure that we are having a heart that's bent on glorifying God. Glorify God with our words, not ourselves. At the heart, at the heart of a lot of what James has to say about the tongue getting us off track and getting us in situations that can cause a lot of damage is the heart. The heart. Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 45... A good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth good and evil. Man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. We don't just randomly say things. But the things that we say, the things that come out of our, mind, or out of our mouths come from our hearts. They come and they are a mirror to what we really think. To what we really believe. To what really is in us. And so my second point for today is to purify our hearts. If we want to glorify God with our words and not ourselves, if we want to overcome the tongue, then we must make sure that our hearts are purified, that we are seeking to have a heart set after God, not after ourselves. Reading on in James, the third chapter, verse 7 through 12, it says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and of creature... Of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no one can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father and with it we curse men. And then we have been made in the similitude of God. Or who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Right here, James tells us something that is very 
interesting anomaly. Here you have the tongue, the small little body part, small little member of a human being. And then he talks about every single creature, elephants, tigers, buffaloes. Mankind somewhere has been able to tame every one of them or do something, domesticate them to be able to use them for their, for their own ability. We can make uh, elephants roll on command. We can make snakes lay down. We can make and teach monkeys to draw. We can do amazing things as human beings with other portions of the species of creation. The one thing that man cannot tame, the one thing that man cannot subdue is the tongue. That is really enlightening. I mean, that just shows you how powerful the tongue is and what, how serious that James is. James is. How serious that James is. It says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Notice how James seems to link the tongue as if it is in and of itself an actual species. A species that's actually more dangerous than lions more dangerous than elephants or tigers or rhinoceroses. All of these huge animals, all of them are more tameable than the tongue. None of them have the unruly evil, the restless evil, as some translations bring out this term. None of them have the level of deadly poison. Interesting little passage that's in Psalm, the 140th chapter, verse 3. It says, they make their tongue as sharp as a serpent's. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Talking about the unrighteous. Just talking about how strong and how full of venom, metaphorically, of course, the tongue can have to cause destruction. But here's the double-edged sword of it. Do we become mute? Do we just stop talking altogether because the tongue cannot be tamed? How do we still proceed to proclaim Jesus Christ when we understand how dangerous it is when we're treading on ground and we're using a member that's untamable, or at least to an extent, carnally untamable? We can use the tongue to bless someone and curse them. We can use the tongue to bring forth fresh water or bitter water, salty water. We can use the tongue to build up somebody to promote somebody for positive purposes, or we can use the tongue to cut down, to cause rumors to abound. We can, of course, testify to truth, or we can slander. In Matthew, the 15th chapter, my last passage I want us to go to today has to do with what Jesus has to say about the mouth and the heart. We're looking at trying to seek to have words and a tongue that is set on glorifying God, not ourselves. And we're looking to do this and understanding that we have to have a pure heart for this to happen. Matthew, the 15th chapter, verse 11. Matthew, the 15th chapter, verse 11. Now what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Skipping down to verse 17, Jesus reads on or speaks on and says, Do you not understand whatever that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, 
blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Of course, we understand that that passage, the meaning of that passage, has to do with the traditions, in particular with the Jewish context that Jesus is dealing with. But the message and the sentiments is simple. It's the heart that those things proceed from. The key to taming the tongue, because I wholeheartedly believe that James was being sarcastic, to put it another way. In other words, he wasn't saying that it's impossible. He's not saying, hey, look, guess what? I, I want to tell you something. Uh, you can't tame the tongue. It's evil. And guess what? There's nothing you can do about it. He says it ought not to be so. He, th there's a way. He's being sarcastic and overemphasizing just to bring out how destructive the tongue is. James, of course, in my firm belief, does believe that a Christian can tame the tongue. And I think that Jesus, right here, shows us the way. It's the heart. What's in your heart, sooner or later, will come out. Have you ever tried to be someone you're not? And what I mean, have you ever tried to do something that's not your heart's not into? You might be able to do it for a while. But sooner or later, you'll weary out. The truth will come out. In conclusion, we must use speech with caution. We must realize that the destructive power that resides in the tongue, and despite its size, it is one of the most untamable members of all creation. At its core, our tongue is the mirror of that heart that we just talked about. Our hearts, if they are set on elevating God's glory, that's the question that we have to ask. Is our heart set on the glory of God? If it is, then our tongues are on the way to be tamed. At the end of the day, we must realize that our tongues can set the paths not just for ourselves, but for others as well. Friends, parents, teachers, coaches, mentors, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, all of us have someone at some point in time that they're going to come into contact with through some way where the words in which they speak is going to have an impact on that other person's life. That impact can be good. It can be something that builds up or that impact can be negative and something that helps destroy or be destructive. And this also goes with not just cutting someone down, but telling someone something false, something to believe in that's false, to lead someone, as Ken was talking to, astray to start believing in things that are not sound doctrine or not sound teaching. One of the great commissions we have been given on this earth is to faithfully represent Christ and his glory on this earth. And one of the great tools that we have to do so is, in fact, the tongue. But let us tread lightly as we use that tool, as we understand the destructive nature that it can have. Let us make sure that we are seeking to promote the glory of God and not our own with our words. And of course, we do this with a pure heart.